Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, May 28, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with the cover story. Uncertainty continues as arts community rises from pandemic's grip. As shows are scheduled and events return, organizers wait for audiences to come back. By Michael Crum. Often for the first time since before the coronavirus pandemic began, performing arts centers are scheduling in-person performances, live events are returning, and staff who were furloughed are returning to work. But as the arts and culture sector breathes back to life, there's wariness over how the public and audiences will react as the world reopens. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced earlier this month that all people who are fully vaccinated against the virus could shed their masks and resume most normal activities, both for gatherings indoors and out. As of May 24th, more than 1.34 million Iowans, or about 42% of the state's population, had been fully vaccinated. Jeff Chalisvig, CEO of Des Moines Performing Arts, said people should be cautious when it comes to how quickly touring groups resume their normal schedules and how audiences will respond. It has to be at a place where they are comfortable touring, and that is coupled with the eagerness of the audience to come back, he said, so it's kind of challenging and I don't have any real answers. Des Moines Performing Arts announced its first in-person live performances in more than a year earlier this month. More announcements are expected in the coming weeks. What that will look like as far as capacity is still, quote, a work in progress, Chalisvig said. For large-scale shows like Broadway and popular concerts, the only way for those to make sense financially is to have full capacity, he said. That's where we're going to have to see how things go with following the guidelines we get from the government and relying heavily on the medical community here in Iowa to help guide us through this, he said. Hoyt Sherman Place has also begun announcing live, in-person performances, and things are looking good for 2022, said Robert Warren, the Performing Arts Center's executive director. Our 2022 calendar is about as booked solid as it could ever be, said Warren, who expects shows to be at 100% capacity this fall. He said the question is more about the comfort of audiences than performers when it comes to theaters opening back up. I participate in three different national advocacy groups for the performing arts, and the fact that New York City and Broadway are reopening at capacity July 1st, certainly if there's any hesitancy, it will be on the part of the consumer. But the artists, the cities, and the talent are ready to be back on the stage, Warren said. The Des Moines Playhouse announced its lineup for its next season, which begins in September, and David Kilpatrick, the nonprofit theater's executive director, said every show will grow in audience size as comfort levels rise in returning to live theater. We are not expecting people sitting side by side en masse until December at the earliest, he said. 
At the Science Center of Iowa, Kurt Simmons, president and CEO, said they are adding two days a week that the center will be open beginning in June, with applications for summer programming already at pre-pandemic levels. They hope to return to full pre-pandemic activities by early 2022. Des Moines Performing Arts has relied on free, virtual programming to keep engaged with its audiences. Three virtual shows for families this spring drew more than 50,000 households. I think that virtual programming has had its ups and downs, Chellis Vig said. I think that many people have found it to be a replacement, a good kind of substitution, but there really is no way to compare what happens in a virtual situation to a live performance. And so I think certain elements of what we have done will continue because there are still likely going to be some wonderful programming, especially for young people, that we can do, he said. Kilpatrick said a lesson the Playhouse learned during the pandemic is the benefit of streaming its performances. We're theater, and we do live theater, and we're going to entertain even if it's only 45 people, he said. But we started getting into some streaming options and realized streaming does not dilute what we do. Using state grants received in December, the Playhouse installed cameras to live stream all its performances. From reaching people in the area who can't attend performances to reaching family members from across the country, streaming creates greater accessibility, Kilpatrick said. That, to me, is why we see streaming as permanent for us, he said. It's about accessibility and allowing them to connect to us closer. Without revenue coming in from ticket sales, performing arts venues have had to rely more on donors, budget reserves, and government assistance to stay in operation. The incredible generosity of its donors has been critical for Des Moines Performing Arts, Chellis Vig said. They have really been stepping up and helping to keep us going, he said. The organization has also had to dip into its reserves and it submitted a grant application through the Small Business Administration's Shuttered Operators Grant Program, but won't know whether its application will be approved until the end of this month, Chellis Vig said. Des Moines Performing Arts, which had reduced its staff by 40%, is also beginning to bring some of those people back as programming ramps back up, Chelesvik said. According to Kilpatrick, the Playhouse has survived the past year thanks to, quote, tremendous support, end quote, from the state, Bravo of Greater Des Moines, and the Iowa Arts Council. The Playhouse also received assistance from the Federal Payroll Protection Program. Its staff members also reduced their pay to help make ends meet, he said. At Hoyt Sherman, membership renewals remained consistent and the theater received a few small loans through the Small Business Administration, some emergency funding through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, and a PPP loan of $165,000. Hoyt Sherman lost 85% of its revenue overnight when it had to shut down after the pandemic started. Instead, it shifted its focus to the Mansion Restoration and Renovation Project, which received $350,000 in state historic tax credits and a $100,000 donation from the Dahl Trust. 
How would you even think about getting through a year? Warren said of the precipitous drop in revenue. That's what we all had to face in the arts community. Fortunately for Hoyt Sherman Place, we had the museum and the art gallery to keep us busy, he said. Hoyt Sherman's full-time staff has remained employed throughout the pandemic, but the part-time events staff, such as valets, bartenders, stagehands, and merchandise vendors, remain furloughed, he said. We're still very much in a period of unknown, said Sally Dix, executive director of Bravo of Greater Des Moines. I think that's the kind of thing many of these organizations are still struggling with. Is it really over? And if it's really over, what does that mean? She said. Bravo, which provides grants funded by hotel motel tax revenue, has invested more than $6 million in the regional arts and cultural sector over the past year, the highest amount ever, Dix said. We have really worked hard to push out as much funding as possible to put some gas in the tank for the cultural organizations while we're in this holding pattern, she said. That will leave Bravo relying even more heavily on hotel motel tax collections in real time, Dix said. Hotel motel tax collections run about 90 days behind, so Bravo won't start to see the benefits of any recovery until probably June of this year, and possibly not until September. With declines in hotel motel tax collections over the past year, as hotel occupancies remain well below normal levels, currently 40 to 45 percent compared with 60 to 65 percent, Bravo is projecting a budget for its next year that is below its 2019 revenue, Dix said. With the revenue shift, Bravo has changed how it awards grants from a projection-based model to what it will know it will have, she said. We just pivoted a little in how we make our investment decisions to provide stability so we're only awarding what we know we have, and we believe that's a benefit to our cultural partners to know once they receive something from us, it's a done deal," Dix said. Even when live performances return, there will be less room for error if audiences don't return as quickly as venues may want," Dix said. Many of these organizations spent deeply into their cash reserves, so the risks may not necessarily be riskier, but the fall could be harder because there's not as much cushion there for some organizations, she said. While he's optimistic, Kilpatrick is staying realistic that the recovery could be a long-term venture. We'd like to get our salaries back up to the level they were before, but that's going to take a little bit of time, he said. We'd like to have more than 100 people see a show each night, but that's going to take some time, and we'd like to be doing more, but that's going to take some time, he said. The Playhouse seats 412 people, but right now is only selling 100 seats to keep audiences safe. That won't change any time soon, Kilpatrick said. Next, from the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Pride Flag of Des Moines debuts with collaboration from three area organizations by Kate Hayden. Soon, residents may notice a new version of the Flag of Des Moines 
popping up on front porches across the city. The pride flag of Des Moines, a vibrant 11-color design created in collaboration with Capital City Pride, the Des Moines Black Liberation Mo Movement, DSM-BLM, and One Iowa. The first thing I thought when I saw the flag was, my two little boys are going to be so pumped, said Courtney Reyes, executive director of One Iowa. When they see the pride flag, they know. That means that their family is seen and there's so much power in that, she said. The pride flag of Des Moines, designed by Mason Kessinger, overlays the traditional Des Moines flag's white three-bridge pattern over pride stripes from left to right, beginning with a brighter red than the tone that anchors the city flag. Black, brown, light blue, pink, and light gray cap off the pattern to represent black, brown, and transgender intersectionality in the LGBTQ community. Kessinger ultimately drafted 18 versions of the Pride Flag of Des Moines before the final design was announced jointly by Flag of Des Moines, Capital City Pride, DSM-BLM, and One Iowa on May 1st. Available for pre-order through Flag of Des Moines, 15% of the Des Moines Pride Flag proceeds will go to benefit the three partnering organizations. People will decide what the flag means to them. For me, it means the potential for people to see the flag and recognize that people exist and that space needs to be made for and carved out for them and protected and consistently cared for in this city, DSM-BLM Field Operations Officer Matei Muhammad said. Although the first Pride flag was designed in 1978 by Gilbert Baker, Pride flag designs have continuously been updated and adapted by different LGBTQ communities. In 2017, the Philadelphia Office of LGBTQ Affairs unveiled the first pride flag to incorporate black and brown stripes. In 2018, Portland, Oregon-based designer Daniel Kassar added a chevron to the left side of the flag that featured both black brown stripes, and the blue-pink-white of the trans pride flag. The idea for a local pride flag was planted in Mason and Emily Kessinger's heads soon after launching their small business, Flag of Des Moines, in 2018. But it wasn't until the pandemic lockdown in early 2020 that Mason began drafting a design Emily told the business record. This is all about collaboration, Emily said. I think it's important for our network that hasn't considered the LGBTQ community as much or the trans community or the black and brown community. What could it mean for them to step up and out and take a stance, she said. Incorporating the five additional stripes on top of the traditional pride rainbow highlights voices that have been central to the LGBTQ plus community's fight for recognition, said Destiny Woodruss, a board member for Capital City Pride. Iowa is a very white state, but there are black and brown voices in here who are also LGBTQ. There was an issue trying to bridge the gap and really connect those communities, Woodruss said. Now we're moving towards incorporating black and brown voices. The flag is symbolic for that because it recognizes that historically that has not always been the case. 
While we as a community are trying to change over, turn a new leaf, there's still some work to be done. When I looked at the flag, I saw a symbol of hope and a symbol of what we're working towards, Woodruff said. The flag's three stripes, representing transgender pride, also highlight a community under attack. In the U.S., more than 200 transgender and gender nonconforming individuals have been killed since 2013, according to the Human Rights Campaign's 2020 report tracking anti-transgender violence. In Iowa, 15 bills drafted during the recent state legislative period targeted the LGBTQ community in some way, Reyes said. Ten of them targeted the trans community specifically, and eight of them targeted transgender youth, Reyes said. As a society, LGB folks have a lot of privilege that trans folks don't have. We have to keep pushing the envelope forward. That does make people really uncomfortable, but I want my trans friends to stop living in fear, Reyes said. The pride flag of Des Moines is one of the first projects that DSM-BLM has collaborated on with a private business since the collective organized in 2020, Muhammad said. While DSM-BLM's mission is centering black voices and leadership, the organization is also learning from other organizations that model inclusive policymaking and programming. Organizers with DSM-BLM and the Iowa Queer Communities of Color Coalition are in the planning stages of a multi-month personal safety and communications device drive, such as cell phones, security, cameras, pepper spray, and other devices, for black LGBTQ individuals who are at greater risk of being targeted in anti-LGBTQ violence. We have a department that's just dedicated to culture keeping and dedicated to making sure that we continue to have the conversations and push ourselves, Muhammad said. I think the best learning honestly comes from being open to having conversations and being open to your own shortcomings. That's one of the main things in these culture keeping conversations that are ongoing indefinitely, Muhammad said. Finding partnerships that step beyond performative symbolism is a priority for DSM-BLM, he added. If we can build relationships with people that are willing to open these conversations up, willing to search for solutions to these problems, and also willing to put their money where their mouth is in the short term, we find those partnerships to be mutually advantageous, Muhammad said. As for the pride flag of Des Moines, expect to see it at homes and businesses soon, said Emily Kessinger. The North American Vexillological Association plans to future the flag design in an upcoming edition of its newsletter. And Flag of Des Moines is working with the City of Des Moines LGBT Advisory Council to propose that the city recognize the pride design for Pride Month in June. Capital City Pride expects the flag to be present at many of the 30 Days of Pride events through June. It's important to know that this is a brand new flag and this is capturing where we are, where we are now, and where we need to go, Woodruff said. We exist all year round, Reyes added. It's not always easy being LGBTQ here, and people like to glaze over that, but it's hard. We want to fly a flag with joy and know that we need to do the work.
from the guest opinion column submitted by Jan Freed. Culture post-COVID, putting organizations back together again. Post-COVID, leaders will need to put the organization back together again. We will likely be working with three basic models based on what is best for the organization and employees. Entirely remote, predominantly in-person, or a hybrid of the two. Understandably, corporate culture often took a back seat during the pandemic. The focus was on survival and navigating workplace challenges. Now that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, it is time to rethink, rebuild, or even recreate company cultures that make people feel connected again. When most employees worked in the office, corporate culture was absorbed by new employees watching and listening to how things are done and then passing on those norms and values through their own actions. But this is challenging in a world where many employees are working remotely. When out of sight, it is easy to be out of mind. Employees miss out on spontaneous conversations that happen in hallways and around water coolers. These are all relationship and culture building opportunities not available when working from home. Remote work makes networking challenging. But new circumstances require new expectations. The current research on workplace culture advises the following in putting the organization back together again. Communicate expectations clearly and consistently. Involve employees in rebuilding the corporate culture. And create rituals to reinforce the culture. Liz Fosline and Molly West Duffy shared leadership advice in their article, How to Prevent the Return to Offices from Being an Emotional Roller Coaster, in the MIT Sloan Management Review. Many organizations are considering a hybrid work model, in which teams come into the office a few days a week or a few key days a month. For employees who have felt isolated during the pandemic, returning to the workplace will be exciting. For those who have appreciated remote work, it will likely cause anxiety. For many, it may be both. Regardless, the return to offices will be emotional and not easy. Be transparent. Share what you can when you can. Don't wait to communicate until you have all of the information because that is rare. Answer questions as honestly as you can. When there is a plan, make sure managers know all of the details so they can communicate expectations clearly and confidently to their teams. Remember, the goal of transparency is to earn trust and reduce unnecessary stress. Fosline and West Duffy suggest conducting a survey with questions such as, how many days a week would you like to work in the office? What will make the return to the office easier for you? Are there any extenuating circumstances you're willing to share that might make a return to the office especially hard or scary for you? What types of work would you prefer to do from the office? For example, large staff meetings, new team meetings, brainstorming sessions, etc. What types of work would you prefer to do from home? Always share survey results. 
Use it to have honest conversations about the decisions made and particularly why decisions are being made. Discuss expectations. As where you work becomes less important, when you work will take center stage. As part of your hybrid work plan, come up with a list of communication norms that will support productivity, engagement, and satisfaction. Examples of norms might include, all meetings will have a video link to ensure that remote team members can join. Everyone, whether they're in the office or not, will be expected to be online within reason during a subset of normal work hours, for example, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., to have some overlap with all coworkers. Everyone will share what they are working on for the week in a group email or Slack thread. Leaders will call in to meetings from home at least one day a week to normalize remote work. Involve employees. Bringing people into the conversation increases the acceptance of change. Ask for their input. Create small focus groups to brainstorm ideas on how to support each other while being as productive as possible. Emphasize advantages of being in the office. If you eventually want most people back in the office, use data to support this choice. According to a survey by PwC, almost 90% of employees said that, that team collaboration and building relationships were much easier in person. Share other reasons their physical presence matters. Present the change as an experiment. Humans like the status quo, and now we've gotten to used to work f used to the work from home model. Even though many people are looking forward to returning to the office, there will still be anxiety around the change, especially given that there will be hiccups in the process and obstacles to overcome. To ease people's anxiety, frame this as a pilot test that will continue to be improved over time. A strong and healthy organizational culture does not happen automatically, and it doesn't happen overnight. You need to invest the time and effort up front in order to put the organization back together again in ways that are best for everyone. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, May 28, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. The next story, Child Care broadband listed as top wins for business community during 2021 session by Michael Crum. As the 2021 legislative session gaveled out last week, among the list of accomplishments being touted by lawmakers were several measures that could directly affect Iowa's business community. We wanted to review this year's session and look at some of those wins. Lawmakers approved bills that would allocate $100 million a year for the next three years to expand high-speed internet to underserved areas of the state. They also approved bills that aim to eliminate the child care cliff effect 
by increasing the income eligibility requirements for child care assistance and creating a graduated phase-out for benefits as a family's income rises up to 275% of the federal poverty level. They doubled the income eligibility level for child care tax credits from $45,000 to $90,000 and increased the reimbursement rates for child care providers to 50% of 2020 market rates, an improvement from a several years old reimbursement model. A bill also passed that increases the number of children allowed in unlicensed home daycares from 5 to 6. In other areas, the legislature increased the Workforce Housing Tax Credit from $25 to $40 million in the next fiscal year, with $12 million earmarked for rural communities. The program provides incentives to developers to build homes in the $200 to $285,000 range to increase housing stock for working professionals. The legislature also increased investment in the Housing Trust Fund from 3 to $7 million for affordable housing opportunities across the state. The legislature also approved a large tax reform bill as the session wound down that reduced income taxes, eliminated the inheritance tax, and moved funding for mental health services from county property taxes to the state. Lawmakers also voted to put more money back in the pockets of those engaged in the fight against food insecurity. To measure reaction to this year's session, we spoke with several members of statewide and regional business groups and nonprofits who said some of the legislation passed this year could help attract more people to Iowa and build the state's workforce. We talked to Joe Murphy, the executive director of the Iowa Business Council, Andrea Woodard, senior vice president of government relations and public policy at the Greater Des Moines Partnership, Dustin Miller, executive director of the Iowa Chamber Alliance, Dave Stone, advocacy officer at United Way of Central Ohio of Central Iowa, and J.D. Davis. Vice President of Public Policy for the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, to get their takeaways from the 2021 session. Unanimously, they listed bills that addressed the state's child care challenges and the expansion of high-speed internet as among the biggest wins at the State House this year. Those were the ones that we will be talking about in the coming weeks that we feel were very good for the business community, Woodard said. In the innovation update, Remotely RoboFlow, co-founders share their thoughts on building a remote startup team by Kate Hayden. The computer visioning startup RoboFlow has been built from laptops in Des Moines, Washington, D.C., a Florida Airbnb, and the Taiwanese beachfront. As of last year, RoboFlow is officially a fully remote company. Co-founders Joseph Nelson and Brad Dwyer hosted seven of the eight full-time team members in May for an on-site staff retreat based out of Gravitate Coworking downtown. RoboFlow is training two new employees who also attended a leadership summit in Ankeny 
and both co-founders wanted to develop quarterly in-person events to help the team with long-term planning and creative work. Importantly, they also want the staff to hang out together. We didn't make an intentional decision to build a remote company. That wasn't part of our founding principles, said Dwyer, RoboFlow's chief technology officer. That just happened, so now we're trying to figure out what does that mean now that we can physically be in person and it's okay? How do we develop the company culture? Employees hail from Des Moines and Iowa City, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Minneapolis, and Oregon. Nelson, RoboFlow's CEO, splits his time between Des Moines and Washington, D.C., and a high school student from Texas interns with RoboFlow remotely. Nelson and Dwyer talked with Innovation Iowa about building a remote startup workforce. The following conversation has been edited for length and clarity. What has it been like to operate RoboFlow remotely? Dwyer. Out of necessity, everybody was remote for the pandemic, so hiring the best talent that we could find, it didn't matter if you were on Zoom next door or on Zoom a couple states over. We've instituted a policy, or we're trying to institute a policy, where if one person is remote, everybody's remote. This morning when we had a call, because Amanda, the UX designer, is not here but would be on that call, we all went to separate conference rooms and dialed in on Zoom, even though seven of the eight of us were in one space. What we found is if seven people are in one room and one person is remote, it's almost like that person is not as involved because of the Zoom latency, the muting and unmuting of microphones. They're not as integrated in the conversation. If we're going to have an egalitarian culture where everybody's opinion matters, we need to level the playing field. Were there models of other startups or companies that you were able to talk to before establishing a remote company? Dwyer. We've been having a bunch of conversations with friends who are startup founders just to understand what they're thinking in terms of when the pandemic's over. Are you going to have an office anymore? Is everyone going to stay remote? A lot of the things that serendipitously happen when you're in the same room with each other need to be forced to happen. Explicitly planning social events helps, but it's not quite the same. It feels very planned, and that's different from having a passing conversation with somebody in the hall or in the lunchroom. Because you have to plan a Zoom meeting, you don't just have those 30-second interactions with somebody. Sidekick was a company in our Y Combinator batch that gives each team member a dedicated tablet. It has a camera on it and you can drop in, either unmute yourself and just speak to the room, or drop in and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. It gives you a sense of presence, kind of like being in the same shared virtual space all the time. Nelson. It gives a little bit of personality, to some degree. Amanda's dog will jump in frame and stuff like that, which is funny. There's a little less loneliness, I suppose. Sidekick told us we are their top five in terms of most active users across all the teams that they have. Dwyer. 
We're all dealing with this for the first time, coming back to work from a pandemic, just like we all dealt with a pandemic for the first time last year. It's almost like a multivariate experience where everybody's going to try their own thing and figure out what works best for them. We can all share those ideas and come to an agreement on what the new normal is. What are your priorities when you get the team together? Nelson. A really good anecdotal metric is, when walking away from an in-person gathering, you hope that two people who may not have known each other particularly well now have trust and confidence to text the other person something totally unrelated to work. It's like the lead a horse to water phrase. You intentionally want to create the space for those moments to happen, but you can't force them. So what are the conditions that give someone unstructured space, but you're having a shared experience? How does hiring remote affect the way RoboFlow attracts talent? Dwyer. It's really our job as founders of the company to build up these advantages and make it a no-brainer place to want to work. It helps that we're working on a very cutting-edge, exciting field. It helps that we have a ton of customers already. But we're a venture-funded startup in Iowa. That sets us apart. We went through Y Combinator. That also sets us apart. We both founded other companies before. That sets us apart. As a founder, nobody's going to have that exact set of qualities the same as us. Your job is to highlight what the unique things are about you and why somebody should come and work on your team. If you can't figure out why people would want to work for your company, you should think about that. For communities housing your remote work employees, what's the benefit to having a remote workforce? Dwyer. It's a huge opportunity for cities to be able to attract all these people. They don't have to first attract companies to get those people. They just have to be an attractive place for the people themselves to go to and work at. I think this might decrease the value of having a big landmark employer based in their city. But it also means that if you're a skateboarder and you work for a remote company, you might flock to Des Moines. It's like a direct-to-consumer model for cities. Nelson. I think people might make more conscious decisions about living in places that align with their values, their interests, or their preferences. That's interesting to think about from an employer's perspective. As we get bigger, you hope that we'd be able to have an impact on the ecosystems of these developing places, either economically or contributing to meetups. That's really symbiotic relationship for us, to identify talent in each of those places and for those cities to have high-skilled workers working in promising businesses. I'm an island in DC for the RoboFlow team, and one thing that I like is that I have a network there of other people I know I'd want to work with. I hope that will continue to happen as we hire individuals who might be islands in their respective cities which also hopefully helps us diversify our network. Dwyer. I've heard Silicon Valley described as, it's not a place, it's a mindset. It's interesting to think about how, if these companies are now no longer just locked up in the Bay Area, 
They have employees, team members, and founders all over the country. You no longer have to assimilate yourself into Silicon Valley's culture. If you were a part of Uber and watched how that grew from zero to tens of billions of dollars, if you lived in Des Moines and saw that happen, that's much more valuable to Des Moines than if you had moved to San Francisco, and that was where your network was. I think it could lead to a proliferation of the magic of Silicon Valley. When you think about RoboFlow as a remote company two to ten years from now, what would you like to see in your workforce? Nelson. One concept we talk about a lot is hiring people that eventually want to start their own thing. We think those are leading indicators of those that act with great pride, autonomy, and diligence with their work. That correlates with people who probably want to independently start their own sorts of businesses. Being the first employees at a high growth but small entity, you get so much exposure to how to raise capital, how to hire, how to make product decisions. Workiva has had pretty big successes in Ames and Des Moines, and Dwala is starting to have this too, where Dwala alums are going on and being early employees at other companies. That positive feedback loop of allowing someone to reinvest their skills and their financial returns is something I really look forward to. Dwyer. It's a distillation of what makes Silicon Valley such a strong ecosystem. You have these category-defining companies that bring together all these people for a short period of time, and then they all cross-pollinate and disperse to their own companies. We really want that to be a part of our culture of supporting the alumni network, even after they leave, by explicitly stating that this is one of our goals. Nelson. When I think about my life in Des Moines and my life in D.C., or visiting other cities, there's a way to both be from Iowa and continuously curious, and recognize that there's nothing that separates someone from being competitive at a global level. Remote work has really proved that. From the Closer Look section, meet a leader you should know. Diana Wright, Startup Community Builder, Greater Des Moines Partnership, by Kate Hayden. Diana Wright has always been surrounded by entrepreneurs. In her hometown of Clear Lake, both her parents were business owners and community leaders. Wright began her new role as startup community builder at the Greater Des Moines Partnership in April, bringing years of program building experience at Iowa State University centered on student, faculty, and alumni entrepreneurs. You do have to be a connector. Entrepreneurs are at a critical time. They need a lot of different resources. They don't have a lot of time. They also typically don't have a lot of funding, Wright said. Trying to bridge those gaps quickly is part of building or being a community builder. Previously, Wright worked at the John Papajohn Center for Entrepreneurship at Iowa State University for six years as the Marketing and Programs Coordinator, where she developed Psy Starters, Women Who Create, the ISU Innovation Prize, and other initiatives. 
Wright served as community builder at Douala from 2013 to 2015, leading customer experience operations. How do you describe your new role at the partnership? My role is to create access and direct entrepreneurs and startups. Starting and growing a business can be pretty lonely. Entrepreneurs may or may not know what the valuable resources are in the community, so I see it as twofold, being a connector and refining the entrepreneurial map. That is, how can the startup community in Des Moines improve? I see that in matters of capital, networking and events, education, storytelling, marketing, and diversity. That's a big one. What does it mean to be a community builder for entrepreneurs? First, I think everyone is a community builder, but connection is a huge piece for me. It's one of my strengths and unique abilities. I love creating that community. When I was at Iowa State, I happened to really focus on SciStarters and developing its own little community so that whether it's the entrepreneur, the mentor, or the industry professional, they could all play a role and be part of that goal. What are some of the challenges in that mission for the state of Iowa right now? Diversity is definitely a challenge, and it's something I know the partnership is really getting behind and trying to figure out. What's the plan? What's the vision? That's one of the bigger challenges we have here. That goes back to, if I'm creating initiatives and programs, how do we get these to people who would never show up because of the naming or because they think it represents this other community and it doesn't feel like it represents them? There's a really big opportunity there, particularly in the startup community. What drew you to this role? There's this resurgence of people now that want to just create and build and just literally solve problems together. I see that specifically in Des Moines. Des Moines is growing and I would hope that the startup community can grow with it. For the role itself as a startup community builder, as a creative, I'm really drawn to what's like an open canvas. That's really what I see as far as new opportunities. When I started at Iowa State, it was also an open canvas to create and design programs. So it's kind of a second return to that. I do believe with the partnership that they have a vested interest in the long-term success of the startup community. So that was just very optimal timing. What are your goals? First, making Des Moines a vibrant startup community to both outsiders and insiders. Recognizing that we do have a lot of great people. We have spaces like Gravitate Coworking. We have accelerators, programs, and funds. But I believe in general we need to amplify it all up a notch. After the pandemic is over, I do believe there's going to be a whole resurgence of events and activities and really a surge of entrepreneurs who are buying existing businesses but also creating new ones. So tied to this goal, I'm starting to have what I call curious conversations with a lot of stakeholders in the startup community to informally assess where the current state is. I would invite anyone who's interested in seeing where the startup community goes to reach out to me and have a conversation. 
I'm looking at where we can improve. I see it as the low-hanging opportunities that we can quickly achieve, and then I think there's going to be some really big opportunities. So trying to nail down what those areas are. They might show up as challenges that people are having. What have you been reading, watching, listening to lately? I read a lot of books, and I usually read three or four at a time. One of the books that's stuck out is Bill Gates' How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Because of my new job, I revisited The Startup Community Way by Brad Feld and Ian Hathaway. Adam Grant's book, Think Again, is about how to think freely about everything. For fun, I read poetry, so I'm a fan of Mary Oliver and am currently going through her collection, Devotions. Those are the books that are keeping me interested right now. From the Elbert Files, Jan Gillum did it all. Jan Gillum retires this month at age 85 after 60 years with Ruan Family Businesses. I've known her for more than 30 years, and while she would never say this, I will. Jan Gillum is as close to the perfect executive assistant as anyone will ever find. At one point, a Muscatine businessman was so impressed with her ability to fend off his unsolicited attempts to reach her boss, John Ruan, that he tried to hire Gillum as his own gatekeeper. Ron Gillum Jr., Jan's son, recalls the day in 1975 that pro golfer Tom Watson made her an offer. Along with Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, Watson played in the inaugural John Ruan Multiple Sclerosis Golf Tournament, which raised a then-unprecedented $40,000 for MS. Watson was so impressed by all the balls Gillum kept in the air that he asked her to manage his office. Can you imagine? Tom Watson, Ron Jr. exclaims more than four decades later. Strong communication skills and attention to details made Gillum a peerless organizer. Plus, she was invariably pol polite, deferential, and thoughtful. I'll never forget the kind note she wrote and John Ruan signed after my father died suddenly in 1990. A full generation younger than John Ruam, Gillum, like her boss, grew up on the north side of Des Moines and graduated from North High School. Gillum had a steel-plated work ethic that she got from her parents, James and Hazel Wade. Her father was a firefighter stationed at the downtown firehouse, and her mother was a homemaker at a time when being one involved much more physical work than it does today. As a child, Mom was always active, Ron Jr. said. As soon as she had the opportunity to make a little money, babysitting or whatever, she was doing it. During high school, she was a waitress at the downtown Kresge's Dime Store, where she met Dad, he said. The couple married soon after high school, and ten months later, Ron Jr. arrived. Like clockwork, siblings were added every three years until there were four little Gillums all with first names that began with the letter R. Ron, Roxanne, Rob, and Russ. Ron Sr. worked on a line crew for Iowa Power and Light, eventually becoming an electrical inspector. 
Jan continued to work as a waitress until an executive at Central National Bank recognized her talents and hired her as an assistant. During the early family years, Ron Jr. said, Mom took very little time off but had the support of the family to help. As children, we never felt distanced from her. She knew how to balance life and quality time, along with getting dinner on the table, he said. In 1961, Jan Gillum joined Ruan Transportation in the legal department before moving up to work for Bob Root, a top Ruan aide. Root once told me that he recommended Gillum to Ruan at a time when the boss was having difficulty keeping help. That's the story, Ron Jr. said, but Mom will tell you that Mr. Ruan just took her from Mr. Root. Gillum did a lot for John Ruan. She even sewed bow ties at a time when Ruan's signature neck apparel was out of fashion and unavailable in men's stores. Ruan was a demanding but fair boss, Ron Jr. said. When Jan took up running to mitigate migraine headaches, Ruan gave her time off to train and run in the Boston Marathon and many other events, which included a well-publicized 50-mile run through central Iowa on her 50th birthday. Husband Ron was also supportive. She'd map out a long run and Dad would be there at certain points, enjoying coffee and donuts while he waited, Ron Jr. said. She also took up golf fairly late in life and excelled at it. I once described Jan Gillum as, quote, one of the most uniquely powerful people in the metro area because she had the ability to put U.S. presidents on hold, end quote. Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush served on the Council of Advisors to the Ruan Endowed World Food Prize and frequently spoke with John Ruan. Another person she put on hold many times was Teamsters Union President Jimmy Hoffa, who negotiated contracts directly with John Ruan. Like many of us, Jan Gillum continued to work from home this past year during the pandemic, and that's cut into her golf and running. But with retirement, said Ron Jr., Mom is looking at playing more golf and lacing up her running shoes. Finally, the marketing column by Drew McClellan. Do what you love in service of people you love. The headline paraphrases author Steve Farber's core message as he talks about the power of love in business. It's a perfect segue to this final column in our look at the seven principles that I've identified as vital to Walt Disney's success as he built one of the world's most iconic and profitable brands in the world. For Walt, the other six beliefs all work in service of the final one. Never forget who you serve and why you matter to them. Walt loved delighting children of all ages, and he believed he could help them go on adventures together, through his movies, his theme parks, and the stories he told. Some of the most fundamental marketing we can ever do is to help our team see how personal their work really is. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, May 28, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.